Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at a broad area called democracy and see how we're moving from a representative democracy to a participatory democracy, but we're in a stakeholder stage at this point. We'll also be talking about how this ties into sustainable development. My guest is an expert in this area. Professor Felix Dodds has been a leading thinker in the area of global governance for 30 years, now an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina, where he is the principal investigator for the Belmont Forum funded project and governance of disaster risk reduction and resilience for sustainable development. Professor Dodds is also the author of Stakeholder Democracy, Represented Democracy in a Time of Fear. Professor Felix Dodds, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. I appreciate you being with me again. Felix, it's very interesting. You always do interesting books. You must have written at least 20 by now or edited, I'm sure. But you always do interesting books. And of course, this one is no exception. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, first off, I said sustainable development. How do you, uh, let's have just a brief definition of sustainable development, and then we'll bring it into the whole issue of democracy and the evolution of democracy. Well, just a little bit of uh, background, because I'm actually reading Maurice Strong's autobiography at the moment, and he actually came up with the term eco-development for the Stockholm Conference um, on Human Development in 1972. And it's kind of developed over the following 10 years into this concept, sustainable development. How can we, in a sense, um, balance the economic development with uh, the natural resource use? Uh, and how can we take that into consideration for future generations? And so there have been many definitions of it, the Brundtland definition, but then I think as we've moved forward, we started to see the impact very much of economic development and where we have not balanced it mm -hmm. nature. And you, when you mentioned the Brundtland, I remember a flashback to the Brundtland Commission report back in the early 90s, I guess it was. But then in 1992, there was a United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And of course, that's when it seemed to me that that's when they really came up with this whole concept of sustainable development. And and it's just taken hold and moved very, very nicely. Well, let's revert over yeah. to your book. Sure. And your title is very interesting. It's called Stakeholder Democracy Dash Representative Democracy in a Time of Fear. How did you develop it? it sounds like a perfect title, but how did you develop it? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. I think that um, we're in this period uh, of time when we're, trying to deal with a lot of very difficult uh, issues, uh, climate change, the pandemic. Um, 
And we've seen, um, I guess, since the election in 2016 of uh, President Trump, uh, but more also more broadly with populist movements around the world, that we were seeing a lot of uh, false information being put out, uh, challenges to science, to facts. And so it seemed to me we were, when I wrote, when I initially wrote the book, which was in 2018, and I pitched it, I think in 2017, that we were moving into a period where people were feeling uh, much more fearful of the world um, because they couldn't rely on the information that they were getting. And so it seemed to me that the title itself, because I was dealing with the role of stakeholder democracy, and we'll come into that a little bit more in the, uh, in the discussion as we move forward. But it seemed to me we're in this time of fear, the need to stabilize and to be able to give people hope and to be able to, uh, in a sense, give people some idea of what, the, what is actually happening. And uh, you do a lot of programs relating to climate change. And uh, we've talked about the misinformation that's gone out on climate change. We need to stabilize that information because these things are hitting us in a way that we never imagined at the first place. So that was the background to why we chose the title. Now we're talking about moving from representative to democracy through, I think you're saying we're in the stakeholder democracy right yeah. now, and we've not reached participatory. What are some of the characteristics of stakeholder? You mentioned a few of them. But as we're in this stakeholder period, and what do we need to do to get to participatory democracy? We hear that term quite frequently because that seems to be the nirvana. That seems to be the highest level we, we hope to achieve. But wh what are some of the characteristics? I think Jefferson was very much an advocate for um, participatory democracy. I mean, the arc of democracy has changed over time. And so we've seen a situation going back to Athens, to Rome, that you've increased the people who have a ability to vote. And so first it became all males and then the suffragette movement uh, added women and then the civil rights movement, particularly in the 20th century, uh, added uh, people of color to be able to, uh, to vote or to have that. And we've even seen in this election in the United States, the challenges that we've had from the populist right against uh, um, African-American and Latino votes in some of the, uh, the states where uh, Biden won. And so democracy has changed over time and more and more people have been able to vote. And um, in many countries now, it is a universal, uh, universal uh, access to voting uh, for everybody. Um, Participatory democracy is in a sense when we all participate in the decision-making. And it seems to me that because of fake news, because of deep fake, because of fake science that's going out, that we're not a mature enough civilization to be able to base our decisions on the facts. What we have is a very unstable world, a very big world that's impacted by people's fear. And that what we need to do is I think, strengthen that by the engagement of stakeholders. And so one of the very interesting examples of this, um, which we may go into more depth later, is where when uh, President Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement uh, in the United States, a number of the states and local authorities and businesses said, we will deliver on the two degree 
commitment that the US should be doing, irrespective of, of the government. And so those stakeholders have taken up that responsibility to deliver because they are basing their activities on facts. And so the hope is in a stakeholder democracy process, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's climate change or whether it's another issue that's hitting us, that the involvement of those stakeholders stabilizes the governments to be able to take those very difficult decisions early enough so that the impacts aren't uh, greater. Now, you mentioned the Paris Climate Agreement or Accord or whatever they want to call it. And of course, that was a major, major agreement that was adopted. It uh, was, I guess it was 2015, as I recall. It was, yes. Something like that. And of course, the United States under President Trump got out of it. Now, the U.S. is going to go back into it. How important is it that we be involved in that and that the U.S., which has not played a leadership role at all to some, well, in most areas, to be quite honest, over the past four years, but certainly when it comes to climate change, how important is it for the U.S. to be involved in this? It's a huge uh, deal. Uh, the, the U.S. has often been the leader in uh, environmental issues and addressing those, whether it's been the mercury issue or whether it's been the issue on ozone uh, through the Montreal Protocol. And so having them back at the table prepared to invest through their recovery packages in a green recovery will be uh, very important. If we add to that, now we have a, in the US particularly a very energized stakeholder movement who's also trying to help the US deliver it. My hope is that um, we'll be closer to 1.5 degrees than two degrees. And as you know, one of the most significant things that happened in the last month was China announcing that they would uh, be carbon neutral by 2060, which means in temperature rise, uh, that that single announcement will mean that we will pull the temperature down by 0.3 degrees. If the US comes on board in a way that it looks like the Biden administration is attempting to, I think we can look forward to a uh, opportunity to really accelerate the green technologies to help us to deliver on the two, if not the 1.5 degrees. And of course, the ideal situation is to have as many voices and, and leaders and people who are offering logical, rational evidence to be involved in the discussions to help move this discussion forward. But we're talking, you were talking about misinformation, disinformation, and really outright lies. You come right down to it. It would not be too diplomatic about it. And we've seen a resurgence of that, especially the last four years in the United States, but also around the world. Have we not? It seems like that some of these far-right groups, the neo-Nazis, and I'm not saying everybody who disagrees is a neo-Nazi or anything, but we see that this there's been a resurgence of really uh, nationalists, if you want to call them that, and insurgents who are really opposing a large number of logical policies by different governments around the world, especially in Europe and the United States. And I think that that's built on, on fear. Uh, I think that the, the lack of, of putting the people in jail who caused the 2008 financial crisis um, showed that people felt that the elites in the countries protected themselves, whether those elites were left-wing governments or right-wing governments. There was only, I think, in Ireland and uh, Iceland where the bankers actually went to jail for, for, for their activities in that financial crisis. And we're going to have an accelerated change 
with these new technologies that are coming uh, over the next 10 years. And so the, uh, the need to stabilize um, is really important. Meanwhile, we've allowed social media uh, to be unregulated. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, I think as uh, a progressive, I thought it would open up lots of opportunities for more information about the things I cared about. But I didn't think about what the other side those arguments could use that social media for and so what we've seen is all this misinformation that's gone out and we need to have a serious look at all the social media platforms and needs to be some form of way of ensuring that um, if someone's putting forward uh, information that that those are dealt with properly and, and taken off the platforms and you're right the media outlets do they have a major responsibility to inform people and to do it objectively. Now, a lot of them have bias. I understand that you can have that, but we've seen, I mean, in the extremes over the past year, especially in the United States, what's called the grand lie, the big lie. And that was put out by Donald Trump and his enablers to basically overturn a fair and free election. And many, if not all of the observers have said, or maybe not all of them, but most of them, uh, Republican and Democrat, that this was one of the fairest elections, in fact, the fairest ever held in the United States. Yet on January 6th, 2021, we saw the mobilization, well, the invitation and the incitement of a group, I don't know, three, four, 5,000 people, whatever, to go to the Capitol and to basically to try to physically storm the Capitol. And it's been reported and there was a lot of good video footage on it. We all saw it uh, to take people hostages and to put them on trial and even hang some of them or to kill them. So this, how does this fit into stakeholder democracy is where I'm going with this. This so, seems so, like an extreme example well, in any country, especially the United States. Yeah, so, so the theory of change stakeholder democracy is that involving stakeholders in the development of policy, whether it's at the local, state, or national or international level, will make better policy. And that if stakeholders are engaged in that policy, then they will be more inclined to either singularly or together try to implement that policy. So that's the theory of change of what we're engaged in. And so it is to try and stabilize governments, uh, to enable them to address these critical issues that uh, the world is facing. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with the PBS or Community Access Television Station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just have a computer, you have a website, and you like our shows and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very broad area of democracy and how we move from a representative democracy through a stakeholder into a really participatory democracy, especially in the area of sustainable development. My guest is an expert on this topic. Professor Felix Dodds has been a leading thinker in the area of global, global governance for 30 years. Previously, just recently, he is the author of a book called Stakeholder Democracy, Representative Democracy in a Time of Fear.
Felix, we're talking about what motivates people to do irrational things, and we've seen a lot of it. Some is because they get financial gain out of it, political gain, whatever the case might be, as we see with some politicians, obviously. But we also see that people operate out of fear and, and the unknown. I won't say ignorance per se, but just the unknown. What else can be done to help us to get the media, especially the media outlets who play a critical role, to shine the spotlight on people when they put out misinformation? For example, saying that the COVID was a hoax, it was a joke, don't worry about it, it'll disappear in a day, or the climate change isn't really happening, it's all cyclical. We know both of those are wrong. Uh, what can be done more to help us better understand these issues? So, so I think that in the context of uh, the traditional media, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the Fox News, um, we need to go back to the legislation that was um, passed by uh, Congress underneath Ronald Reagan, which took away the need for balanced news. And that's what that's done is it's, it's enabled, in a sense, uh, particular um, TV uh, shows to present themselves as news without giving a balanced viewpoint. So I think that would be a very important aspect for the traditional news uh, for that to happen. And then I think for the social uh, news, I think that's definitely a conversation for this Congress in the US, but it's also happening in Europe. And so you're seeing uh, a recognition that um, either through misinformation or in fact, as we now know, uh, by foreign governments coming in and uh, and trying to create uh, havoc in a particular country, the need to be able to look at that and to be able to deal with it in a particular way. So I think more regulation will be introduced. Uh, these are private companies, remember, so it's not about freedom of, uh, of speech for the social media companies, but they clearly need to have much better instructions on what they can do um, than what they have at the moment. And I think that will be uh, something that will be really important. And you've had this situation with uh, deep fake that's really kind of grown up in the last year, where I can take a picture of your face and put it on whoever I want to, and it looks like it's you. And so that growth of that, you know, even where you're presenting people, and it's not actually them who are actually presenting, requires a huge amount of changes uh, to uh, enable that we don't start to believe certain people are representing things that they're not representing. Exactly. And we're, they're turning that into a cottage industry, it seems yep. like. It's, it's yep. just incredible. And of course, anyone who looks at it logically says there's no way this person did that. That's just absolutely ridiculous. But it is, it's difficult to find it. It certainly is. Well, I mentioned your book. We've talked about it. But you also have another book that's on the, on the drawing board, as we say. What, what's your upcoming book? And uh, what, what's the title? And what's it about? Yeah, so the, the book that I'm doing at the moment, it's nearly finished. I mean, we will be handing in at the end of March. It'll be out for September. Is Tomorrow's People, The Impact of Disruptive Industries on Our Lives by 2030. And the book um, will take the SDGs and the Paris Climate Agreement as a backdrop. It'll look at 10 <coughs> disruptive industries such as um, artificial intelligence, big data and analytics, biotech, AR and VR, blockchain, mobility, 3D printing, new energy sources, but it'll try and make it accessible to people. So we'll look at how would your house look like in 2030? What would travel look like in 2030? What would your work uh, look like? What would education, what would health 
what entertainment would you have and what, how different would it be from now? So hopefully by doing that in a positive way, uh, but also raising questions about those technologies, which all have downsides as little conversation boxes at the side, we inform people, but give them hope. Because I think one of the mistakes we made over climate change, particularly at the beginning, was to present the disaster side of it, the fear side, and not enough of the hope side. That I think if we engage these new technologies through a look at hope, uh, then I think that really important. And I have two co-authors for the book, uh, Carolina uh, 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 Chopitia, who's uh, from Panama, and Ranger Ruffin, who's um, uh, looking at the social life. Uh, I'm a little bit old to be looking at how things are happening at uh, the young level, but we're trying to look at that and see how those are developing for the future. I can identify with you on that one, my friend. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. As you mentioned, uh, Ranger Ruffin, we just happen to have a little video. We're not going to be able to do all of it, but she's going to get us into another topic, and that's disaster risk reduction. And she's going to give us a little yeah. overview of a snow angel approach that you use. Let's break for a moment, and we'll be back and talk about it. The outstretched angel wings depict how we will um, broaden the scope of stakeholders engaged. However, the snow angel method also recognizes that the further away from the center of the angel, the less engaged stakeholders tend to be on a particular issue. Um, so at the center of the snow angel, which has more depth, um, this represents stakeholders that have more knowledge and power or stakeholders that um, are impacted most by disasters. So in conclusion and put simply, the UNC snow angel method is an attempt to rectify both the need for broad stakeholder input while also recognizing that those most impacted or vulnerable, as well as those with power, likely have the deepest stake in issues at hand. Felix, I think that gives us an idea of where you're going, but elaborate a little more on the snow angel approach and what you're doing with risk reduction. Sure, it was inspired by a Hallmark Christmas movie, uh, which I think is important to understand. I'd, I'd watched um, someone doing a snow angel and. The objective of the project that we're doing with uh, six or seven universities from around the world is to look at that as whether it's floods or heat waves um, and or droughts and to try and build a model uh, uh, which uh, really engages the stakeholders in uh, giving advice to either local, state level or national governments in the context of what they see needs to happen in preparing for disasters, for reacting to disasters, and for, in a sense, uh, dealing with the aftermath of disasters. And so we're hoping to develop a number of indicators which will help, uh, in a sense, um, to uh, advance the collection of data, but also to get a model together, which we will be piloting out in Ghana and Mauritius, um, as we hope it will enable countries and uh, communities to prepare uh, for the impacts particularly of climate change and the changes of uh, weather patterns uh, that we're going to see. Um, and in the US, we've looked at uh, the US the whole, we've looked at North Carolina and we've looked at a, a city, Moorhead City, which sits on the coast. And we're looking at the different levels of uh, preparations that they've got. Uh, we're also going to be using things like um, machine learning to help us collect data from Twitter, uh, which will help develop uh, the ability for people to use social media and perhaps identify where vulnerable people are 
uh, being impacted during a disaster. And of course, we see the climate, according to the experts, climate change is contributing to this. Uh, we see the World Meteorological Organization puts out new reports, new evidence, uh, it seems like on a weekly basis, talking about how we're spending trillions more on disaster relief yeah. and that the disasters are getting worse. I have noticed your sustainable development, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals virtual background, all 17 of them, and there's not a one of them that doesn't depend upon or doesn't intersect yeah. with climate change and can tie exactly right into what we're talking about because this, it's, it's, not, it's not a silo situation. It's not just one vertical entity after another. These are all interrelated activities and they're extremely, extremely important. Well, I'm really anxious to hear about your new book. We'll have to have you back shortly. And, but before we go, let's just very briefly, what do you see as the major challenge as far as helping us to better understand the, the whole concept of participatory or well, yeah, participatory democracy at some point, and how we deal with media malfeasance in many respects. And I've, I can identify several outlets right now. They're they're doing media malpractice without a doubt. But how do how do, how do what do you see as your major challenge as we move forward? So, so I, I think a major challenge uh, is to sort out the social and traditional media so that it has to represent facts and it can't be presenting things that are untrue and we've seen for example in the dominic uh, the um voting machines uh that have been dominion used, yes the dominion that in fact what's happening is they're now um they have a court case against um uh rudy giuliani and a number of the other people in the context of um saying that they've misrepresented uh them and that that's had an impact on the company and individuals so i think that you'll find the legal side will start to take a much more interested um in these kinds of things but i think from my perspective the uh the, the issue around the stakeholder involvement in this is again it's partly if you have companies and you have local and state governments starting to, in a sense, say, these are the facts, we're going to act on the facts, and we're not going to take this uh, misinformation seriously, then I think you're going to see um, a big change. And you've seen it just in a small way in the companies that have already indicated they will not put any financial support behind people who voted uh, for kind of stopping an election in Congress or in the Senate. So I think companies are taking a much more socially responsible role. They're doing that because it's the right thing to do, but they're also doing it because they're aware that the younger generation that's coming up are going to be much more orientated to uh, wanting to see the facts of what's happening. The, as we know, for climate change, the engagement of young people has been critical to raise the issue up to a higher level. And I think that will, uh, that will continue. It certainly will. Well, Professor Felix Dodds, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you, Bill. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.